0: Hello and welcome. We are Restoration Church in beautiful Prescott, Arizona. Thank you for joining us. My name is Nate Huss, and I am stoked you are tuning in to our teaching of the week. If you are new, so glad you found us. If you haven't already and would like to learn a little bit more about us, jump over to restorationaz.org. All right, let's grab our Bibles and dive into this week's teaching.
1: I hope you guys are all doing well this morning if it's your your first time with us My name is Landon, and I get to be one of the team members here. We are in our fourth week of this D and Reconstruction series, and so if you're in a a practice group, we've been uh, praying with you through that, and we'll kind of continue in this progression and and practice and series. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to uh, 1 John chapter 4. We'll uh, spend a little bit of time there in a few minutes. Last week, uh, when, I, when I taught, we talked about how, how both Satan and Jesus want you to deconstruct, to deconstruct your faith, specifically, yet that their hope for outcomes for your deconstruction could not be more different, that Satan wants you to deconstruct your faith and the ending result to be nothing more than just Destruction. While Jesus also wants you to start a process of deconstruction, but one that really functions as a filter that tears down what is unhealthy, what is distorted, parasites that have slipped into how we follow Jesus and our systems and values and teachings and instead to rebuild with what the core is, what is true and right and and whole and good. And, beautiful. and so today we're going to build off of that concept, looking again at the pathway Jesus wants us to take when we enter a process of deconstruction versus the pathway that Satan wants us to take when we enter this process. The, the key for Satan, when he considers your deconstruction process, like the essential ingredient that will make him successful when it comes to your process for deconstruction is to get you to create your own misdiagnosis. The the key for Satan is to cause you to affiliate hardships, pain, confusion, desires or, or misplaced desires, just the brutalities of life to affiliate those incorrectly to some flaw you perceive that God has. If Satan can get you to affiliate the things wrong in your life to a flaw God has in your mind, he is off to a really good start. On the other hand, the key for Jesus, when it comes to your deconstruction process, is that he helps you be deeply honest and deeply aware about the actual root problems of things going on in your life. So as Christians, we do not pretend to have it all together We don't pretend that it's all beautiful. That's why on this wall it says broken stories becoming actively beautiful because there's still brokenness in all of our lives and different seasons and at different times to different degrees. But as Christians, we can be more honest than anyone when life doesn't make sense and when it's hard because it's not about us. We're not God. We're not pretending or needing to have it all together. Instead, we follow and know and mostly are loved by the one that does. For Satan, nothing could be more effective than for him to persuade you that something wrong in your life is caused by something wrong with God. Nothing could be more effective than him, again, connecting something wrong in your life, in your mind, to something that you're gonna perceive as is wrong with him. And there's there's two two ways Satan's gonna specifically seek to create this way of thinking, this philosophy, this understanding in your life. Option number one, Satan will will deceive you into thinking that the wrong things are actually the right things and the right things are actually the wrong things. That's option one for him, it's the first plan. If that plan isn't going to work, he's gonna do option two and and all of you are gonna be faced with both of these possibilities. Option two, Satan deceives people into thinking big things are little things and little things are the big things. And we'll we'll explain and then talk about both of those. Biblically speaking, his first attempt to to get you to think that the wrong things are the right things and the right things are the wrong things. This is laid out again and again and again in the scriptures. Romans chapter one explains this. I want to read Paul's words to a church of people like us, but in Rome a long time ago. He writes this. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness, this is just a powerful three words, suppress the truth. The truth. Who push it down and won't let the truth come out to be known and to give freedom to all who suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, this is another powerful statement, their thinking became nonsense, and their senseless minds were darkened. Notice the progression. Their thinking became nonsense. The big things became the little things, meaning the important things we no longer valued as important, and the not important things we valued as important. Their thinking became senseless, nonsense. Their minds were darkened. Right things become wrong things. Wrong things become right things. Claiming to be wise, they then became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore God delivered them over in the cravings of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served something created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. There are so many ways that the truths of this scripture play out in our world. In our theology, in our understanding of our bodies, our understanding of sexuality, our relationships, our finances, who we think God is, how we treat people. There's endless examples of us exchanging wrong things for right things and right things for wrong things Let me uh, just share one that is becoming a kind of horrifically prevalent one in today's society. Years ago, there was a a young girl, not yet uh, a teenager, named Kayla Lovedall, who claimed at a, a young age of 10 or 11 to her parents that she was a boy. By the age of 12, medical professionals had her on hormone blockers and testosterone when her loving parents who wanted what was best for her went to to seek medical advice, that was the avenue they chose, when they went to seek medical advice on what to do out of an attempt to try to care for their daughter, rightly or wrongly directed, they were told this, it is better to have a live son than a dead daughter. After this progression of advice, Kayla then had a single, One, for clarity, 75-minute evaluation after which she had her breasts removed at the age of 13. Fast forward five years. At 18, she's quoted saying, the hardest part was being sold something that I believed was going to help me and make me feel better only to do it and come out on the other side not feeling any better. Imagine that feeling, when you've put all your eggs in one basket when things in life are actually hard and brutal and there's so much going on and what you're told is the solution is simple, there's one thing to do, you have one thing wrong and you're given this false diagnosis with which you then take action and then five years later there's irreversible things done that you deeply, deeply regret and now there's a large lawsuit as a result and this is one of thousands of stories that are growing daily that look just like this. It's gut-wrenching. And outside of this category of life, which is prevalent now, there's so many other categories where life is hard, where sin is wreaking havoc, our own sin or other sin in our lives, where sickness and pain, confusion, causes us to wonder what to do or what to not do. And that is the precise moment that Satan, as we've talked about, will see an opportunity, a catalyst, a transition, a crisis, a question, a misunderstanding, and he will use that to create this deconstruction and then to assign it in our minds to something that's not actually the root problem. The the consequences of this are significant, and they're being felt and known. Now, if option one doesn't work for Satan, he has a whole playbook. And option two, if he can't get you to misplace the right things with the wrong things and then put the wrong things in the place of the right things, he'll dumb it down a little bit, especially for those of us that maybe have been in church for a while or grew up in church. It's not the only people that are impacted by this next category, but you're especially prone to it if you've been following Jesus for a while. Satan will transition his strategy to get you to confuse the big important things with the little not important things and have them switch places to where the little things become the big things. Once I was in this, uh, this training, about five or six tables were in the room, and it was a training on counseling. And in this training on counseling, the instructor at this day was like mid-afternoon, insinuated that a person could be led by God to be raped or to rape. Now there's deep theological kind of nuances in how we got there, but there were reactions to this. A woman at the the table I sat on, if you don't want to hear a quote-unquote bad word, plug your ears, said passionately, that's bullshit, And then I heard a large gasp. (gasps) But the gasp was not at the idea that God could lead someone to rape or be raped. The gasp was that this woman had the audacity to connect and string together these four letters of the 26 letters in her alphabet together to spell out S-H-I-T. In this moment, this man was astonished and I watched the blood rush out of his face because he was mortified in this moment that this woman would say that word. He didn't have time to in a split second go, I wonder what's happened in her life. He didn't have time to consider her history or the struggles or what she's seen or experienced or suffered through or known that others have suffered through or experienced or seen. The only thing that mattered to him because somewhere along the lines he was taught it probably from a person like me on a stage in a building like this was that you don't say that word. And so a really big thing to that man became almost an invisible thing. And something that was a tiny little thing became a huge thing. And I wish I could say that that's a unique story or that it's overly dramatic, but it's not. Many of you have experienced what has happened when teachers, people in places of authority, your understanding of the scriptures, studies you've been in have made little things big things, causes damage. And there's just as much, actually, if not more damage done when we take the big things and turn them to little things as if they don't actually matter when they do. If Satan can get us to swap those, his impact is significant. These are Satan's goals of misdiagnosis. Jesus, on the other hand, has a very different approach. And if you hear anything, erase anything I've said today, I want you to just hear this next thing. Jesus cares so deeply about you that he wants to help you identify the things that are wrong in your life to their actual root causes and to help you heal and rebuild in health. If you hear anything today, hear how much Jesus actually cares about you and loves you. That's what matters. Satan's strategy, that's worth talking about. We're gonna talk about it. We'll continue to. But it doesn't compare to the just point blank good news reality of the fact that Jesus loves you more than you can imagine and he's strong enough to allow you to be honest about the questions and concerns and confusions you have and he wants to be real that there's real hard things in life some are just downright awful sometimes they happen in a church building sometimes they happen in church relationships or with people teaching the scriptures or from a parent Jesus wants us to be honest about that because he loves us enough and he's strong enough to guide us through those things Jesus does not have his head in the sand. (laughs) something I've just been thinking about this week. Sometimes we live life as if Jesus has his head stuck in the sand. He's not aware or not capable to deal with what is actually going on. But he's aware enough of the hardships in life. He was and is that he gave up his life on a cross to deal with them. That is the degree of his love. We see this in in 1 John chapter four. I'm gonna read verses one through 16. Feel free to read along. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to determine if they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you know the spirit of God. Every spirit who confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Remember that. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That's going to matter later. But every spirit who does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. You have heard that He is coming and He is already in the world now. You are from God, little children, and you have conquered them because the One who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. This is why we can talk about Satan's strategies, but he doesn't compare, this is not a dualism, good versus evil, Satan versus Jesus, they they don't compete. We can acknowledge Satan and have awareness, but he's no contest to Jesus. The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, what they say is from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Anyone who knows God listens to us. Anyone who is not from God does not listen to us. From this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of deception. Dear friends, let us love one another, because love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love God does not know God, because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You could translate that. Jesus is honest about and acknowledges the sin and brutality and hardships in this world, and he did something effective about it out of love. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is perfected in us. Side note, we don't perfect his love in ourselves. This is how we know that we remain in him and he in us. He has given us assurance from his spirit And we have seen and we testify that the Father has sent his Son as the world's Savior. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him and he in God. And we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. Out of love for us, out of love for you personally, Jesus wants you to have awareness of the things that aren't right in life. He wants to help you to understand why they're not right and to bring healing and reconstruction, a new build, health, out of that. Out of love for us, Jesus wants us to have awareness and to test all spirits and teachings and values that are presented and promoted to us. Uh, Another word for test, is the word judge. Read verse one with me again. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to determine if they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. The word test here, again, means to test or to judge. Specifically in this case, it's given this picture of if a metal is pure and strong, or if it's compromised and flawed. A metal can look strong from a distance and then when it's actually used can be broken if it's compromised and flawed. We're meant to test teachings and values and systems that are presented and promoted to us. Culturally speaking, the word judge is really frowned upon. But judgment is necessary no matter how people feel about it. When deception or violence or evil is present, judgment is the gracious solution. Oftentimes, Christians have been judgmental to the wrong people at the wrong times and very unhelpful and unhealthy ways. Yet acknowledging that reality and acknowledging the discomfort perhaps with the word judge, that shouldn't keep us from testing what is good and true. When it comes to our D and reconstruction, assessing our theology, our beliefs, our understanding of what it means to be human, to follow Jesus of all things and how they're created in this world, out of love, Jesus wants us to let the spirit help us test other spirits. A.J. Swoboda remarks on this in his book, After Doubt. He says this, Still, it's become unfashionable to do any judging in our contemporary context, least of all in the realm of theological or doctrinal belief. In our post-judgment world, the church has grown too afraid to name lies as lies and heresies as heresies. Why is that? Why have we grown in this fear? I think probably at its root, it's a misunderstanding of what love is. Culturally speaking, again, we have taken disagreement to equate to hate. If you disagree with me, you must hate me. And we've taken agreement and support to equate to love. If you love me, you will support me and agree with me. And that's just stupid. There's no other way to say it. Now, we can be kind while we disagree with people, but it is unbelievably harmful to agree with someone just because you think it's love. To perhaps be a little bit overly dramatic and cliche, if a a person really felt like it was a good, necessary idea to jump off of a cliff onto some concrete head first, the loving thing to do would not be to support them in their stupid idea the loving thing to do would be to disagree with them. Kindly, perhaps, or maybe harshly, because it would save their life. And in that, and this is maybe the the heartbeat of why I think as a a group of Christians sometimes, now culturally, we we struggle to know when it's appropriate to judge and test. Not arrogantly, it should never be arrogantly. But maybe the reason we struggle with it is because our, our cultural parameters have made it risky. If you actually lovingly test somebody's theory to them, you risk relationship being, A, hurt, or B, much worse, lost. But sometimes that's what love necessitates. Perhaps to be not dramatic enough, Kayla Lovedall really wishes now that her parents and doctors would have judged and tested the things she was feeling and desiring and working through when she was 11 and 12 and 13, because now at 18, the consequences of not testing and judging are severe. Testing the spirits, testing teachings, including my own. testing values that are presented and promoted is absolutely essential as we follow Jesus and as we seek to enter a healthy and good de-and reconstruction process. Again, deconstructing and reconstructing as a package deal is often really good and really needed. But before we, we do the like seemingly fun, HGTV-like, glamorous, swing a sledgehammer into some drywall and then it cuts to a commercial and then like the house is perfect right after, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. So before we start swinging the theological, relational, emotional, spiritual sledgehammer, you kinda wanna step back and draw up some plans, talk to some other people, get some ideas, do some tests to know what actually should be taken out and what should remain, and how you will reconstruct accordingly. We need a a good test, a good plan, a good method. The thing with a a good test is that it needs to be weighted appropriately. Imagine you had a a big important test tomorrow and it's a hundred question test and 99 of the, the questions are given to you ahead of time so you can study them and one question is not. You have no idea what it's gonna be. And the 99 questions that you're able to study, you do, they're all worth one point. But the one question that you're not able to study is worth 1,000 points. That is not weighted very fairly or effectively. It's setting you up for failure, which is precisely what Satan wants. He wants you to diagnose, assess your life in a terribly weighted test to take one thing that's wrong, that's truly wrong, something that's actually painful. We don't want to minimize the things that are hard in life, but he wants you to connect that to a flaw in who you think God is. Again, Satan wants you and I to exchange wrong for right and right for wrong, and if that doesn't work, he wants us to exchange the big things for the little things and the little things for the big things. In our practice booklets here, if, if you're in one of our, our practice groups, we took a concept from somebody who, I'm sure took that concept from somebody else, who probably took that concept from somebody else, and some of these things just get lost through the process, but somebody somewhere provided a really helpful concept and framework to appropriately weighting These spiritual tests as we test the spirits and values and teachings can think of it this way. When we assess theological values for the sake of D and reconstruction, we should assess whether the topic we are considering is a die for issue, a divide over issue, or a debate issue. Meaning, is this worth sacrificing my life for? People died literally so that we could have the scriptures this morning. That's a die for issue. There's others that are divide over issues that are actually worth dividing over, not dying for, but going, okay, if you believe that, we're going to go this way. We don't have to hate each other, but there's, there's consequences and ramifications to beliefs, and we can divide over those. And then there's some that are still important, but they're not die for important or divide over important. They're just debate important. Understanding which topics we're discussing And which category they fall into is really important in this process, because all of a sudden, if we start defending every debate for (laughs) debate over issue as if it's a die for, all kinds of havoc is wreaked. A part of embracing the call in First John four to test every spirit is to test in the appropriate category. And perhaps if you didn't, or if you you did grow up in in the church, from the second you started to hear any teaching about Jesus and the scriptures, you've been handed down beliefs categorically. These terms probably weren't used, but at some point, in some way it was communicated to you, this set of beliefs were die for. This set of beliefs were divide over, how denominations were created. And this set of beliefs are debatable. And maybe you've never processed that, and so you've not categorized. How important is this topic? That person seems to think this one's really important. She said S-H-I-T. That's all that matters. Or maybe it doesn't matter that much, and what's actually going on in that person's life is what truly matters. We get these things mixed up. A good test also asks the right questions. In First John 4... We see that I read this quote to you about First John four from the same book after doubt. Uh, gosh, months ago while we weren't in this series, but it's so good as a kind of summary and framework of how to test the spirits. I want to read it again. It says this: As you're testing, as you're assessing, this die for, divide over, or debate, think through this. The spirit always points to Jesus. I could just stop there really quick. Anytime somebody comes to me with a certain theology and all they care about is the power of the Holy Spirit and how they can use the power of the Holy Spirit, something is wrong. Because they're making it about them and how the Spirit uses them, not pointing to Jesus. Instantly you can know something's off. The Spirit always points to Jesus. We see this time and again in the biblical tapestry of the Trinity. Each person of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, consistently points to the other. They always point to the other. The persons of the Trinity never self-glorify, seeking to draw attention to themselves. Rather, they point to each other. Gosh, even just that, how, how the Godhead three-on-one works is so beautiful and refreshing. We live in a culture where everyone either points to themselves for glory or points to another for blame. Yet the example our God gives us is the inverse. Christian philosopher Cornelius Plantinga brilliantly writes that this is one of the marks of God's nature. They exalt each other, commune with each other, and defer to one another. Each divine person harbors the other at the center of his being, In constant movement of overture and acceptance, each person envelops and encircles the others. God's nature is inherently other-focused. Conversely, the power of darkness, the demons, evil, Satan, dark forces of the world never point to the Father, Son, or Spirit. Instead, they are always pointing to themselves. While the Trinity always points to the other members of the Trinity, evil always points to itself. The irony the one who should be self-centered always points to the other, while the one who should be silenced in the lake of fire won't stop self-referencing. The devil is full of himself, but Jesus is full of the Spirit. I kind of tested this out real quick with our, uh, with our elders, and I said, hey, what are the, the die-for essentials for us? Not that that's something we've never talked about, but I wanted to just put it out quickly to see what is the, like, everyday stuff of life? Ben was probably in a bathroom doing some tile work in this moment, literally. We'll talk, and I can just hear the echo. You know, if someone's, like, in a bathroom, you can hear that they're, like, there's an echo. Ben was doing that. Not going to the bathroom, just in the bathroom. <laughs> Text Aaron as well. And, and here's what we came up with, plus I added one because I didn't have time to talk to them about this more later. So hopefully it's not heresy. And I think soon we'll actually do a whole series on this. I think it'll be worthwhile. But our Die For Essentials list. One, the authority and validity of the scriptures. Two, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Three, salvation through Christ alone. And we could add it by faith alone. The Trinity. Jesus is fully God and fully man. And then this is the heretical part I added. God's self-proclaimed unchanging character, that God will always be compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, rich in faithful love and truth, forgiving rebellion and sin, yet he's always just. That never changes. From cover to cover, from first breath to our last breath, that will always be the case. Who he is does not change. It's how we would think through what are the essentials, what is the core, what do we not try to take out with the sledgehammer because it can't be taken out. These are just the truths of the world. And from there are the building blocks of every other thing. If we get these wrong, we can't get anything else right. Let me close with a a quick recap. For Satan, as I mentioned... Nothing could be more effective than for him to persuade you that something wrong in your life is caused by a root problem of something that you perceive is wrong with God. Again, there's two primary ways he's going to attack that to try to make that happen in your mind. One, gets you to believe that the wrong things are the right things and the right things are the wrong things. And if that doesn't work, he's going to get you to think that the little things are the big things, and the big things are the little things. That swap is really effective. The other day, my my son did this, actually. I was going to let my seven-year-old and my two, almost three-year-old, watch a a TV show. And so they were arguing about which TV show to watch, and my son... um, kind of did something that the scriptures say is sort of Satan-like. He's not like Satan. He's incredible. But he said, you know what, Haven? I'll make you a trade. I'll give you a penny. And I then get to pick the show. And she could not have been more thrilled. She went around for 36 hours showing everybody her penny because she thought it was a value. And it didn't matter at all. In fact, I don't even think he had a penny. I think he just found one later and gave it to her so he could pick the show. We make this kind of exchange, though all the time. We see something shiny and fun-looking, and we go, oh, that's, that's the thing. And we quickly replace the big for the little, the little for the big. Jesus, on the other hand, as I mentioned, here's the one thing I do want you to leave with, if there's anything. He cares so deeply about you. He knows you better than you know yourself. He loves you more than you love yourself, which I like to say is a whole lot, if we're honest. And he wants you to be aware of the things that are not right, the things that are broken in and around you. He doesn't want to ignore them. His head is not in the sand. He has solutions, and he's capable and caring. And he wants to guide you to test, to filter out what is the metal, what are the values and teachings that are pure and strong and right? And what just has the appearance of it but is actually feeble and compromised? We need to test the spirits and the teachings and weight them appropriately. Again, a helpful way to do so is, is this a die for, is this a divide over, is this a debate? In your, your practice groups this week, that will be your practice to think through what are the values and teachings that have been handed down to you just by the time you were 20, quickly. Like you'll spend time just jotting it down in five minutes. Go, what ones do you actually hold to? Which ones were pushed on you as the that maybe weren't? Which things weren't expressed as of actual value but are totally essential and they weren't taught to you that way? Or maybe you're just forming your own beliefs now. How will you do so? weighting them appropriately is, is essential. Again, unfortunately, we often make the mistake of swapping the debates for die fours and, and vice versa. That's a disaster when it comes to DN reconstruction. Too often, we don't know which fights to pick. White-knuckled, we cling to non-essentials, and then we open-handedly give away the things that are actually essential. For example... I mentioned it earlier, but defending your opinion on a debate level topic, like it is a die for topic, is like a surefire way to get people to reject Jesus. If we're fighting like our life depends it on things that our lives don't actually depend on, people will want nothing to do with the image we're projecting of who Christ is. It's not true. And often, thank God, he just works through all of our chaos and nonsense. But there's a responsibility we have to stop that. As we've said every week, the good news in all of this is that you are not alone in this journey of D and Reconstruction and you are not in charge in this journey of D and Reconstruction. The Spirit is. And so as we do this together, we depend on Him to lead. Let's pray. Jesus, I just thank you for your love this morning. I pray that... Each one of us in this room can just rest on that foundation that you love us more than anything else. Our questions, our confusions, right, wrong, in our past and our future, you just love us. So lovingly lead us. Lovingly help us test and judge what is true and right and good, what matters a lot and what doesn't. Protect us. Give us eyes to see the lies of the enemy. We just ask that you lead. We come to you now. We worship you. We love you because you first loved us.
0: In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for tuning in to our teaching of the week. We are so grateful to partner with you in sharing the love of Jesus in a world that really deeply longs for it. And whether you're new here, seeking more information, looking for a church community, or considering financial partnership, go ahead and visit restorationaz.org for more details. Okay. Let's continue making a difference together. So how do we do that? By remembering Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.